lot of Ben's time, uh, but uh, it would take a lot of time to adequately introduce my good friend Ben Vick. He has been a faithful worker in the kingdom of God for many, many years. Our friendship, as I mentioned in Bible class, began some 42 years ago with Ben and Lois, and it's been a sweet and wonderful friendship uh, all of those years. As I said, not always able to be together as much as we would have liked, but the friendship has been there and the fellowship nonetheless. Ben and I were privileged to work together at the Centerpoint Congregation in Birmingham uh, many years ago and now. Uh, ben taught at Jefferson Christian Academy and coached basketball there. He even got me involved in helping him coach a little bit there at one time. I was the official assistant coach, which meant absolutely nothing uh, at all <laughs> because he was the expert. <laughs> but uh, we worked together at Centerpoint uh, as preachers there together, and uh, Jefferson Christian, he was there. He and Lois both taught there. Janice taught there, too. We have some wonderful, wonderful memories. I'll to relate more of those as the week goes on, perhaps, even being stranded on top of the Masada in Israel uh, many years ago, too. That was quite an experience, but uh, uh, we love and appreciate Ben and Lois Vick. He has been the preacher for the Shelbyville Road Congregation in Indianapolis for 36 years. For many years now, he's been one of the elders there. He and Brother Bobby Davis serve as the elders there now, and that's been my privilege to be at the fine Shelbyville Road Church on more than one occasion. It's a fine fine congregation, standing for truth and propagating truth in, in that area. And what a tribute it is to this good couple to have been there for so very long and have done such a wonderful work, not only there, but wherever they have been. In the Bible class this morning, Ben's topic was, I have found the book. And if you were in that class, you realized very quickly that long ago he had obviously found the book, studied it diligently and faithfully, and presents it clearly and without compromise. He'll do just that even now as he presents another lesson to us, Brother Ben Vick. I'm thankful by God's good providence that grants us the privilege to be here this morning. I thank Jim for those kind remarks. Thank you for what you didn't say, Jim. <laughs> I, uh, we have had some good years, good times together, and uh, I appreciate uh, the kind introduction. I invite your attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning with verse 17. Paul said, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unless which are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the dispute of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For well, the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, and the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, have not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. 
But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the, those which are, things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, yea, hath God chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to naught the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who are of God, who has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The Apostle Paul is not putting down the importance of baptism in verse 17. He's simply saying he does not want men, the reason he, he baptized so few, was because he did not want men to follow him. He wanted men to follow Christ, and such should be our desires. And, and Paul says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. The world in general looks upon the preaching of the word or the word of the cross as foolishness, silliness. They think it's of no real value. But those of us who believe recognize that it is the power of God unto salvation. When Jesus was in that upper room, having instituted his supper, the apostles and he left and they went to Gethsemane. And when they arrived in Gethsemane, of course, Jesus left eight of his apostles near the edge of the garden in the three inner circles, so to speak. Peter, James, and John went in a little farther into the garden with Jesus. And Jesus went a stone's throw away and prayed three times, Father, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will but thine be done. And then he was arrested, as you know, when you read the accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And he appeared before six, he had six examinations or trials. One with Annas first, who was recognized by the Jews as being the high priest, and then Caiaphas, his son-in-law, appointed by the Romans. And then he appeared before the Sanhedrin, and while he was before Caiaphas, the Bible tells us in uh, Matthew's account, I believe it is, in chapter 26, that he was spat upon by the religious leaders and buffeted. It's interesting that that word buffeted means to hit with a fist. Now it's true that uh, in a little later it, refer it references hitting him with the palm of their hands, but they hit Jesus with their fist, religious leaders. From there he went to the Sanhedrin and then ultimately appeared before Pilate, who said three times at least, I find no fault in this man. And then he went before Herod, 
when Pilate saw his way out, he thought maybe, well, Herod will take care of it. And so he went before Herod. Herod turned him back over to Pilate. And as we read the account in Matthew 26, we read about his, uh, through these trials, and then in chapter 27, we read that Pilate had offered to release Barabbas. It was their custom at that time of the year to release a Jew that had been in prison to appease the Jews. And Pilate asked, should I release to you Jesus or shall I release to you Barabbas? Shall I release to you uh, one who is innocent, without fault, or shall I release to you this murderer, this thief, this instigator, this rabble-rouser? And they said, release Barabbas. And, G- and Pilate then asked the question, what shall I then do with Jesus, which is called the Christ? And they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. They chose a murderer, a thief, a rabble-rouser, as opposed to the sinless, peerless, pure rather, Son of God. And Pilate washed his hands of the scene, of the situation, thinking that that relieved him of his responsibility, but it did not. The Romans were in charge, and they were the only ones that had the right to put anyone to death. They could carry out capital punishment. The Jews could not. And the Jews said, His blood be upon us and upon our children. The Bible says in Matthew 27 and verse 26, Then he released, then released he Barabbas unto them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Short sentence. When he had scourged him, he delivered him to be crucified. What does it mean to be scourged? The Bible tells us very little about scourging. It just simply states the fact. But it's good for us to meditate upon it a little bit. Jesus was now seized by some of the soldiers standing near and after being stripped to the waist, was bound in a stooping posture, his hands behind his back, to a post or low pillar near the tribunal. He was then beaten till the soldiers chose to stop with knots of rope or plated leather thongs armed at the ends with acorn-shaped drops of lead or small, sharp-pointed bones. In many cases, not only was the back of the person scourged, uh, cut open in all directions, but even the eyes, the face, and sometimes even the teeth were knocked out. Under the fury of the countless stripes, the victims sometimes sank amidst screams and convulsive leaps, and distortions until a senseless heap, into a senseless heap, and sometimes died on the spot, sometimes were taken away, an unrecognizable mass of bleeding flesh, to find deliverance and death from the inflammation and fever, sickness and shame. What he must have endured is pictured to us by Eusebius in the epistle to the church in Smyrna. Quote, All around were horrified to see them, that is the martyrs, says he, so torn with with scourges that their 
very veins were laid bare, and the inner muscles and sinews and even the very bowels exposed. The scourging over Pilate, as his office required, standing by to hear any confession that might be made, Jesus was formally delivered over to a military officer with the authorization to see him crucified. Another source gives this description. Low scourging posts are permanently positioned there for this task. Fixed to the top of each post is a metal ring. Each condemned man will be brought forth with his hands tied. The executioners will strip him of his clothing and then force him to his knees before binding his hands over his head to the metal ring. The wrist will then also be shackled to the ring. This locks the body in position, preventing any squirming or other attempts to dodge the blows of the flagellum or the whip. Even before the first lash is laid against a man's back, it is common for the victim to tense every muscle in his body and grit his teeth against the horrible pain that will soon be inflicted. The key to the executioner's art is not how hard they whipped a man, but the effort with which they would yank the whip's metal and bone-flecked tendrils away from the flesh after each blow. For this is where or when the primary damage is, uh, to the body was done. Yet as horrific as this process of lashing might be, it is just the start of the agony of our Lord. The physical agony, that is. We read then that after he was scourged, he was led away to be crucified. It was the practice of the Romans for the criminal to carry his cross, that is the crossbar, which weighed sometimes about 110 pounds. Now you imagine, here's Jesus having been up all night, the emotional strain, and now the physical damage that had been done to his body, and he's having to carry the cross to Execution Hill. We see that before him was carried a sign, or maybe he carried it around his neck even, of the crime that he, of which he was guilty. Of course, you know from the four accounts, it tells us that the sign, the superscription read, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. When Jesus could no longer bear the cross, the Romans found a, a subject, Simon Sereni, who was coming in from the country, and he compelled him to bear the cross after Jesus. A great company followed the procession, including women who bewailed and lamented Jesus and what he was suffering, what he was going through. In Luke 23, 28-31, Jesus said, turning to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in which they shall say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bear, and the paps which never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? Imagine Jesus going to his execution, having suffered all that he had suffered so far, and now he tries to comfort these women and in essence says, don't weep for me. It's going to get worse for you. 
And he's looking to the time of the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 and what's going to happen then because he being God could see what was going to happen. Again, Jesus, even while he was living and as he was dying, he was thinking of others. He wasn't thinking of himself. When they came to the place called Golgotha, or Calvary in the King James Version. We do not know the exact location of this, except to say from Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 12, it was outside the gate. There are are traditional spots where supposedly this place was, but it was called Golgotha because it was the place of the skull, or skulls. You know, the, the word Calvary is a Precious word when you think about it, isn't it? We sing about Calvary often. But Golgotha is a rough and horrid thought when you think of it. Crucifixions were first practiced by the Persians, brought to the Mediterranean and to Egypt and to Palestine by Alexander the Great. The Romans perfected this form of execution. The crossbeam also called the patibulum, was laid on the ground. The clothes of the victim were taken off. According to some, the Jews were allowed to leave a loincloth on. The victim's arms are stretched out with a little slack while the soldiers hold him, and another takes a mallet with a six to eight inch spike or nail and finds the indention in the wrist and drives the nail through the hand deep into the wood then the other hand is done the same way. When I preached this lesson some time ago, a brother came up to me and he said, you know, I had not thought about this until you were describing this to me. And he said, I'm wondering if they used iron nails or if they used wooden nails. I said, I don't know. It would seem that the wooden nails would even be worse than the iron nails because they wouldn't go in quite as quickly and it would be very painful. It would be painful either way. The soldiers lift the crossbeam with the victim nailed to it and raise it so that it fits within a slot on the horizontal beam which had been hewed out by the crossbeam, or the, actually the vertical beam, which had been hewed out for the crossbeam. The weight of the victim's body keeps the beam in place. Then the victim's knees are bent a little and his feet are nailed either one on top of the other or separate. Luke 23 33 tells us these words, Luke 23 and verse 33. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Vinegar with gall is offered, but Jesus refuses. It was a narcotic, an aesthetic, an aesthetic. Jesus felt the full force of the suffering and the anguish and the pain. Death by crucifixion was a horrible way to die. All the pain and death that came about, the the ghastliness of it, dizziness, cramps, thirst, tetanus, starvation, traumatic fever, the publicity and the shame of being uh, crucified publicly and being seen of all. 
the long continuance of torment, the horror of anticipation, the mortification of untended wounds, all the pain that was that one could endure, yet not enough to go into unconsciousness. Sometimes men would suffer for days and days before they finally succumbed to death. The unnatural position made every movement painful. Keep in mind that the cross was not a smooth wood. It was perhaps a rough wood. And every time he moved up and down on the cross to get a breath of air, uh, the pain would shoot through his body. The lacerated veins and the crushed tendons throbbed with uh, incessant anguish. The wounds inflamed by exposure gradually gangrened. The arteries, especially the head and the stomach, became swollen and oppressed, filled to capacity with blood. During all of this suffering, there was the burning and the raging thirst. The agony was so unbearable it would cause many a victim to look upon death as an exquisite end, relief, some even begging for their lives to be taken. Jesus was on the cross six hours, suspended between heaven and earth, from nine in the morning to three in the afternoon. From twelve noon to three in the afternoon, there was complete darkness. It was not an eclipse as people think of an eclipse because... At that time of the year, is a full moon, and you cannot have an eclipse with a full moon, and uh, usually an eclipse does not last that long. I remember when I was in high school, uh, living in South Georgia, there was an eclipse, a solar eclipse, and there was, it was in the mid-afternoon, I believe, and it began to get dark, and the birds were singing like uh, evening is coming, and then it was complete darkness, and then in just a few moments... Uh, the birds would start singing like it was morning. But this is darkness from 12 noon to 3 in the afternoon. And during this time, Jesus expressed seven statements. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke 23 and verse 34, a word of forgiveness. He said, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise, speaking to uh, one of the thieves. A word, really, of comfort. He said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Matthew 27, 46, a word of loneliness. We have never known loneliness as Jesus did. He was separated from his heavenly Father. And as you remember from John 1 and verse 18, the Bible tells us in that passage that, uh, that no man has seen God at any time who was in the bosom of the Father. Jesus Christ was in the bosom of the Father. So there was a closeness, there was a nearness, there was a sweet fellowship that existed. But Jesus, because he took my sins to the cross and took your sins to the cross and the world's sins to the cross, was separated in a sense from his heavenly Father. Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53, verses 1 and 2 says, or 59, 1 and 2 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither is his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. So sin separates us from God. Because Jesus was our sin bearer, he carried our sins to the cross, and thus a separation, in a sense, from his heavenly Father. He said, woman, behold thy son. 
John 19, 26 and 27 now. Jesus was concerned about his mother even when he was dying. He wanted someone to care for her. Part of Christianity is to care for our aged parents when they're unable to care for themselves and, their, and our grandparents. 1 Timothy chapter 5 tells us that if any will not provide for his own, he's denied the faith and he's worse than an infidel. That's a part of Christianity. Jesus said, I thirst, in John 19, 28, a word of want. In John 19, 30, he said, it is finished. Not just the suffering, but he said, this is a word of trust. When he says in Luke 23 and verse 46, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. So you have seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. But the question that comes to you and to me is, why did Jesus die? Why the cross? Why the suffering? Well, I've already indicated one reason, but of course, the greatest thing is God's love for us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.16 When we were without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly, for scarcely for a righteous man did one die. Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare die. Yet God commended his love toward us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ also died for us. Christ died for us because he loves us. Because he did love us. His heavenly Father loved us enough to send his only begotten Son. I cannot imagine that kind of love that he expressed in sending his Son. He did that for you. He did that for me. Why the cross? In order to be our atoning sacrifice. In 1 John chapter 2, and verse 2, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus made that atoning sacrifice that made it possible for us to be saved. The blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. In Revelation 13, 8, John speaks of that lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. John the Baptist, when he pointed others to Jesus, said in John 1, 29, Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. In 2 Corinthians 5 and 21, For he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He made him to be the sin bearer, or the sin offer. he made the sin offering for us. For you and for me. Jesus died on the cross in order to take away the law of Moses. I don't know that the expression of our Lord when he said it is finished has reference to the end of the law of Moses. It may well be that because Colossians 2.14 says, blotting out the handwriting of the ordinances that was against us which was contrary to us and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. We know that that was involved in his death on the cross that it would end the law of Moses. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. The second, meaning the New Testament, could not have been established without the removal of the first. There were not two laws, two covenants, going on at the same time to the same people. The law of Moses ended at the cross. 
He died in order to ratify or seal the New Testament. In the upper room, when he instituted his supper, he said in Matthew 26, 28, For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And in Hebrews 9, 15, And for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that run to the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. He died on the cross for these reasons as well as to purchase the church. How can anyone think that the church is not important? Would Jesus die for that which was not important? Would you be willing to die for something that is not necessary, that's not important? Jesus died for the church. In Acts 20, 28, Paul said, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and unto all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. Now if you were going out to buy a car and you really liked this car and it cost you $25,000, you'd be willing to pay that because you would see value in that car. You might be willing to have to take out a loan for it for a while. But because you saw the value of the car, you would be willing to sign your name to a note saying, you'll pay $25,000 for it, or more after the loan is finally paid off. And how can anyone say that the church is not important to Jesus? He purchased it. That shows you the value of it. What did he pay? He paid for it with his blood, his life. The life is in the blood. He gave his life. Why the cross? In order that God might be just and the justifier of them that believe in him. In the Old Testament, under the patriarchal age and under the law of Moses, animal sacrifices were offered. And these animal sacrifices did not remove sin. In a sense, we use the expression that their sins were rolled forward, but actually the idea is that they were remembered each year. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4 says, It is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. But it took blood, for Hebrews 9.22 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. But it took the perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ, to atone for our sins and thus to justify God in his passing over the sins of mankind who who had been faithful under previous generations until Jesus died on the cross. Look with me in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by the grace, by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 3, 25. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. The word remission there is not the same word you have in Acts 2.38. It is the idea of passing over. The New King, King James Version renders it correctly there. The passing over. God passed over the sins of the faithful ones under previous generations until Jesus died and then their sins were forgiven. And thus, 
God could be counted as just and be recognized as just or righteous by his having passed over. What a wonderful thought that is. Of course, we live under a different age. We're in the gospel age or the Christian age. And we can have forgiveness of sins by our obedience to the gospel. Jesus died in order that he might reconcile us to God. Why the cross? These are a few reasons. Jesus died in order that you can go to heaven. But you have to be obedient to his will. You have to believe the gospel with all your heart, John 8, 24. Jesus said, for if you believe not that I am he, you shall die in your sins. You've got to be willing to repent of your sins, Luke 13, 3. I tell you, nay, but except repent, you shall all likewise perish. You must be willing to confess Christ before men, Jesus stood before Herod and was willing to uh, state and did state that he was who he claimed to be, the Son of God. And Herod said, that's blasphemy. He rent his clothes. Jesus died for that truth, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then you must be willing to be immersed or baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins. In Acts 2.38, Peter said, and then repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. When you do that, the Lord adds you to his church, Acts 2.47. If you have done that, but you've been unfaithful, you brought shame on the church in a public way, by repentance, by confession of sin, and by prayer, you can get right with God. Your brethren pray with you and for you if it be of a public nature, and God will forgive you, and your brethren will receive you. 1 John 1 and verse 8 says that if we uh, say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. What a wonderful thought that is. Why not become a member of the Lord's church for which he gave his precious blood on the cross so long ago? Why not do so today while together we stand and sing?